When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to Matt D'Elia is Confused. This is Matt D'Elia and this week's episode, or rather this episode this week, I might drop another episode in a couple days, but this episode features a guest. I haven't had a guest in a couple weeks and I was very excited for this guest Doubly excited because he, the guest, was suggested by one of you, one of my listeners. Uh, unfortunately, I don't remember who that was, but whoever you are, you are a listener to this show, so you will know who I'm talking about, and I thank you. I thank you for suggesting I have Robert Jones on as a guest. Robert Jones is the founder and CEO of PRRI, the Public Religious research institute um and he's also a writer he's written a couple books uh his last book which i read is called uh white too long and it's about what he calls the unholy alliance between white christian america and white supremacy or rather christian america and white supremacy the book is fascinating his background is fascinating um the the different areas that he has his his hands in um and he the the book sort of takes on a lot of things that i'm fascinated with uh and have sort of touched on in various ways on the show through a very particular lens that i found very 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 interesting and important especially considering the moment we're living through right now uh the book is great i highly recommend it our conversation sort of expands on uh, uh, the book and sort of digs very deep into the ideas and the questions it raises. And also he clarifies many a thing that have both historically confused the shit out of me and only recently began to confuse the shit out of me. So Robert, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for clearing up a lot of shit that confuses me both about Christianity and white supremacy and the country in general. Um, but yeah, if, uh, um, if you like the conversation, definitely, definitely, definitely grab his, uh, his book white too long. It just came out actually, I think a couple weeks ago. So get it audiobook, real book. However you digest information, it is an important book. Okay. Uh, so here is my conversation with Robert Jones. Robert Jones, welcome to Matalia is Confused. Uh, I'm really excited about this. You're actually one of, you came across uh, my desk, so to speak, basically because uh, a listener recommended you and that's always my favorite and i and i and i immediately looked into you and what you do and i i i read your book white too long i looked into prri and and this is is very exciting to me this touches on a lot of stuff i talk about a lot on the show and you are an expert in many of these things so i was wondering if to kick things off maybe you could just sort of you do you do a wide range of of things that i find actually just fascinating even before we dive into those things I'm curious as to how you kind of came to where you are at the intersection of, of all of the various things you do, if you wouldn't mind just sort of framing it for a moment. Sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's great to be on um, and to, to talk with you. And it's a great story. I'm, I'm glad to hear about the yeah listener yeah. Um, talking to you about that. Um, so, you know, it's 
one of those things where in retrospect, uh, I can tell a much co- more coherent story. Um, so I, but, uh, the truth is I, I sort of bounced around a bit. I was an, as an undergraduate, I was a mathematics and computer science major. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always been interested though in religion and politics degree from a Southern Baptist seminary, grew up uh, Southern Baptist in, in Mississippi. Um, and then along the way, kind of caught the academic bug. Um, and so ended up uh, going to Emory University for a PhD in religion, where um, it was really a sociology of religion mm. uh, program. Um, and that allowed me to kind of also dust off some of my quantitative interests with the subject interest in religion. And um, and then about a little more than 10 years ago, founded um, Public Religion Research Institute, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan independent research organization where we we study religion, culture, um, and politics. Um, so most of what we do, um, uh, predominant uh, work we do is um, in tracking demographic change and doing public opinion surveys um, and, and paying really close attention to this kind of religion, culture, and politics intersection. Yeah, it's fascinating and, and very, very much, I think, on a lot of people's minds right now. Um, <clears throat> if, if you don't mind me asking at the outset, one of the my my the most interesting things i think about your at least your latest book white too long is your sort of personal journey with coming to terms with uh christianity's sort of involvement with white supremacy and how those things are Mm -hmm. inseparable and a little bit about how how you came to that i think might be interesting as well because it, it is an interesting journey from and i think a lot of people can can relate to this kind of thing where it's it's apparent it being apparent, it wasn't so apparent until you did get older and realize yeah. what some of these symbols were and what the, some of these things meant. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, as I said, I, you know, I grew up in the deep South. I grew up in, mostly in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, but, you know, my, my family um, uh, goes way back. Uh, both sides of my, my parents in the South, both, both of my parents are from essentially uh, Macon, middle Georgia, Macon, Georgia. Um, and my family goes back six generations um, on both sides in, in those two counties, Macon and Bibb, uh, in Bibb County and Twiggs County, Georgia, um, is where my family is for more than 200 years. Um, and plenty of Baptist, you know, pastors mm-hmm. and preachers uh, back there. So, but, you know, so I grew up very much immersed in this world. And um, I was also that kid that um, was at church uh, literally five times a week. Mm-hmm. You know, so every 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 time there was something going on. I was there all the way up through my, my high school years um, and even into college. And, you know, yet it really wasn't until I was in seminary. Uh, so I was like, you know, my 20s. By the time I really was confronted with, um, you know, anything around uh, white resistance to, you know, and the role that the Christian church in particular played in resisting segregation. Um, and, and maybe the most shocking one, particularly because I was, uh, you know, remember the Southern Baptist Church was that I didn't even know the origin story of our own denomination. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so so the Southern Baptist denomination uh, was uh, founded in 1845, um, and it was over the issue of whether um, a missionary could own slaves or not and still be appointed to the mission field. Um, and and there was a big break, and Northern Baptist said, "No, we see that as incompatible with Christian teaching." And the Southern Baptist churches uh, said. Uh, they saw no problem with it and, in fact, forced the issue um, and then broke away and formed their own. That's where the name Southern Baptist Convention came from. It was literally the Southern churches that were supportive of slave-owning clergy um, that uh, that formed this, this convention. That's the genesis story of my own denomination, um, and it wasn't one that I knew really until I was an adult. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's easy, I think, for someone, especially someone coming into themselves now, growing up, I think if if the stuff is there, if it's apparent at all, it's sort of hidden or cloaked or or sort of ingrained in some kind of symbolism. But it is it is truly unbelievable to to just even the passages in your book, some of the stories about the beginnings of uh these denominations are truly, truly mind blowing. And I think a lot of people with just sort of a surface understanding of what Christianity is, Christ- from Christians themselves to even non-Christians, I think that there's this, there's this thing that comes automatically where we think the Christian way is to 
automatically based on the sort of writings and teachings to treat everyone equally. And that's how we should mm -hmm. all be to each other. But that, whether you read into that in the actual text or not, is just not at all true about the origins of it. And, and, and some no, of that, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's right. I mean, you know, I, 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 and I, you know, I, I essentially, I mean, the book is because it has my personal story is, is it is very much personal. You know, I began the book with the, the first sentence of the book has the word I in it. The last sentence in the book has the word us mm. in it. So, you know, it's not really a finger wagging book where I'm standing outside, and, you know, chastising those crazy backwards, racist, right. white Christians. I mean, it, this is, this is my, you know, sort of my story. Um, and, and, but because of that, I do try to um, write as, as, in an unflinching way as much, as much as I can, because this history has been so repressed and just not faced. Um, so you know, it, it is the case that, yeah, you've asked most white Christians today and they'll say, Oh, of course, well, you know, Jesus is supportive of, um, uh, and, and Christian Christianity supports equality, right. you know, for all races. Um, but it wasn't that long ago. I mean, it really is just my parents' generation where, um, it was outwardly true. Like Ross Barnett, for example, was the most raised, you know, one of the most segregationist governors Mississippi's ever had. And that, that, that says a lot, um, you know, in, coming from Mississippi, mm -hmm. but he was also the well-respected uh, teacher of the men's Sunday school program at first Baptist Jackson. And mm -hmm. he would be, and he would mix these things on the campaign trail. And so, you know, even in 1960s, he was saying uh, that, for example, God was the original segregationist. Yeah. I mean, he would just flat out, you know, say that. And the sense that, you know, a very, you know, the way that many people thought about Jesus just a generation ago was, uh, you know, Jesus was white mm -hmm. and there was this light skinned Jesus that not only was just fine with segregation, um, uh, but actually demanded its defense. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, it is interesting because the, if you read, if you actually read the Bible, obviously, I know you have, I, I just think a lot of people might not understand that it is true that you can read those texts and come away with a very you can read those and come away with a very pro or at least uh okay with slavery reading of that stuff i mean there's a lot about slavery and if you wanted to which these a lot of these men in the confederacy really clearly did you can come up with a reading that really does support your ideas, no matter how violent or, or, or sort of horrible they may be. And I think that that is also something that might in a modern day sort of surfacey understanding of Christianity might not be known as well. I mean, the meat was really on the bone for a lot of these people to really twist or, or make into their vi to fit the vision that they wanted to see, which was, uh, an America that had slavery. I mean, it, it's just possible to take a lot of the passages in that book and really make them into into what you want. And I and I think that to see how, I mean, the the picture that you paint from its genesis, I guess, from really around mainly around the Civil War, particularly after that, I'm 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 very fascinated by this sort of strange serpentine way that this stuff kind of crept back in uh mm -hmm. and and it wasn't i think a misconception that i actually had until i read your book was that these confederacy symbols these signs of of, of almost of a hearkening back to that time uh in a, in a positive light w w isn't actually from that era i, th I don't think I, I don't think i knew that i think that i thought of mm -hmm. those symbols as things of the past that were just from there that were tradition kept up in the name of either tradition or history but a lot of that stuff which you point out which i'd love to get into now which is there was sort of this push i believe in the early 1900s as you point out to sort of repurpose a lot of public places with these either uh monuments or symbols and the flag and everything and i think that that's an important yeah. thing to talk about yeah yeah, you know, there's a whole piece of history here too that that I didn't know uh, before I started you know, really deep, deep doing the deep research for the book, um, and and I think one of the things that was became most clear to me is that while the issue of slavery was settled 
you know, by the Civil War, you know, ended this kind of slave owning states versus non slave owning states and whether the U.S. was going to tolerate this as a as a um, as a practice. Um, that question was settled. Right. But the, but the question of white supremacy uh, survived the Civil War uh, quite easily. Um, and, 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 you know, if you read Frederick, Frederick Douglass and some of the other black abolitionist um, activists, I mean, one of the things they're most dismayed about after the Civil War is that I think they had expected that with slavery, white supremacy would also wither on the vine. Right. And they found um, much of their dismay that no white supremacy was even al- was alive and well, even among their fellow white abolitionists. I mean, and, you know, one one quote I, you know, I have in the book is, um, is is actually from, again, not from the South. This was a New York Presbyterian ab- white abolitionist minister, um, one of the kind of uh, most famous you know preachers of his day named Charles Finney. Um, and, you know, he was a staunch abolitionist. And but after the war, um, after the Civil War, one of his younger uh, 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 parishioners was uh, arguing for them to integrate their worship services. And um, he stopped him in his tracks and he said, no, 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 you err in supposing the principle of abolition and amalgamation are identical. Mm-hmm. Um, and just said, you know, yes, we were for the ending of slavery. We are not for, um, you know, just throwing everyone together um, and on equal footing um, even in the church. Um, and I, I think that shows you just how strongly uh, this was set up. And, and, you know, you just followed all the way through and all the way up into the 20th century and the civil rights movement. Um, you know, the, the bulk of white people in the pews were either indifferent or are opposed uh, to, to civil rights. And, and the churches played a key role um, in, in uh, kind of, you know, we, we hear a lot about um, usually if you hear the word church and civil rights in the same sentence, what you think about are African-American churches that mm. were serving as these hubs for organizing people for civil rights. Right. But what you hear very little about um, is the ways in which white Christian churches were also organizing hubs uh, for resisting uh, the calls to civil rights. Yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. I think what, what is just in the broader uh, ideas of the book and what we're talking about now, I think that to some people who are less sort of deep into these subjects, I think there's a very sort of lazy surface reading of history where people tend can look at the past and think, well, that was all so long ago. Slavery mm-hmm. was so long ago. The Civil War was so long ago. The Confederacy was alive so long ago. But when you look at this, at the actual details of the, of the, of, of, in your book through the church, through the, through the lens of the church, so much of it sticks as time moves forward. This is not just slavery ended. So now everything's done. This is like an ongoing conversation and battle on a much smaller scale post civil war. And it, it isn't something that ended. Ever. There is no end to this battle. It's actually still ongoing and, and, and was actually sort of the, the Civil War was just the m- most major blow to these kinds of ideas, but they really are still here. And I think that that is the grit, the, the strongest takeaway for me from the book, which is that these things have really, really long tentacles. And as you described, even an abolitionist could, could, out of one side of his mouth say slavery is an, uh, a true horror and a stain on our society. And out of the other side of his mouth can say, but we won't let black people into our church. And I think that there's this, there's this mixed, almost m- modulated for the times thing that happens that I, that is less obvious than just uh, chattel slavery or, 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 or the Confederacy or anything like that. I think really these tentacles are what you're sort of outlining so well and so clearly. Um, and 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 I I'm I'm wondering, has uh, you specifically as 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 uh, what has this done to your belief, if anything, or has it shifted you? I mean, I know you want the church to awaken itself to itself in the, on these matters, and for people to take action and be aware of these things, and 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 and. But I'm curious, you specifically, has this affected? your belief uh, or your your way of uh, folding religion and Christianity into your own life? Yeah. Uh, well, look, it's, it was, I, I, there were moments when I was doing the research, I was moved to tears. Yeah. I mean, you know, just by the horror 
yeah. of what I was un- what what I was uncovering, and, and um, you know, uh, being appalled, uh, being aghast, um, you know, reading something two or three times to make sure I read it right, right, uh, because it was so aw- so awful. What I, you know, what I was reading. I mean, th- this is. Uh, was very real um, to me, um, you know, but, but I, I think at the end of the day, so I, I read a lot of um, uh, James Baldwin, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, as I was writing the book as well. And, you know, one of the things that just kept staying with me was, you know, he talked about himself as being um, a witness mm-hmm. um, to the truth as best as he could see it and writing, you know, very clearly about um, the civil, you know, he wrote predominantly in the, civil rights movement, um, you know, in the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, and, you know, that was sort of a helpful way of thinking about it to me is that um, uh, I, at the end of the day, think I think this is a hopeful book, despite uh, some of its difficult content, um, sure. you know, that, but that one way toward help. Um, and, and I think that that's something I actually also learned from, from Baldwin is that, you know, if we're really going to move toward um a culture that's more healthy, uh, politics is more healthy, um, and a nation that's more healthy, um, we're going to need to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you can't get there, I think, without telling the truth. Um, so, you know, you can, uh, and, and Baldwin, you know, his great line, wrote like 50 years ago, um, you know, he, he said, you know, if, if we can manage to do that, if we can manage to tell the truth, um, and these are his words, you know, we, um, um, you know, he said, we can end the racial nightmare, we can achieve our country, and we can change the history of the world. You know, and, and so that's, you know, was his vision even 50 years ago. Um, and clearly we haven't, um, you know, we haven't done that. And we're, I mean, those lines could have been written yesterday. Right. Um, you know, about the racial nightmare in the country. That, and, and largely the reason why we still have that is because of the denial, um, you know, among white Americans and, and white Christian Americans uh, that I think have, have particularly put a Christian veneer um, on on white supremacy in a way that's made it acceptable and a way that has made it um, you know able to be kind of just just under the surface um, you know without really being fully called out. Yeah, you know one thing stands out. You you mentioned this denial uh, or this unwillingness to really confront the truth of these things. And there's a poll that you talk about in the book that is stuck in my head. Which and forgive me if I'm phrasing it incorrectly, but it's something along the lines of you. The question being, um, do people who commit violence um, in the name of, of of Christianity or a Christian God or mm. anything like it, do you consider those people real Christians or something like that? Are those really practicing? Yep. And and the seventy five percent of them saying no, that's not really a Christian act. Uh, but it's 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 hard to really i was raised christian i was raised catholic actually but but i'm i'm no longer practicing and i and i know i'm no longer consider myself a believer so it's easier for me to to sort of confront something like that and think well if he says he is and that's where he's getting in at least in his or her yeah. mind if that's where they're committing the if that's the name in which they're committing the violence then it really is in the name of that um and, and i think but that speaks specifically to the denial that you're talking about and you, I would imagine confront this one way or another with Christian, uh, white Christian America, uh, over and over and over again. And I'm, I would love to hear just your, your candid take on that denial and, and the state of it and where it comes from and, and all of that. I know that's a big question, but I think that's, yeah. I think that's the root really of, of everything we're talking about. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it comes from a really simple place. I, I think it comes from defensiveness, right? I yeah. mean, no one likes to be indicted. No one likes to be told, uh, you know, that there's this embarrassing history or skeletons in the closet. Um, it's a, it's, it's tough. Yeah. Um, so, I think there's a kind of natural human defensiveness, you know, that comes uh, from that. Um, but, but I, I guess what I'm hoping is by laying it out um, as clearly as I can. Um, and with an invitation, right? I think with an invitation to go somewhere new, right? Um, you, you know, with with it, I, I think it, it, it's it's not just about kind of flagellation, but it, it is about an invitation to, to again, I think, move into a healthier place. And I certainly, no one can deny, um, or no one, I think, uh, who's in their right mind would propose that we are in a good place mm-hmm. in this country in terms of race relations. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, and we've had protests all over the country that we haven't seen the likes of 
since the civil rights movement, um, you know, and I think when we have these kind of moments, uh, there are opportunities um, for response from from white Christians. And, you know, clearly, um, white Christians have failed this, uh, failed this invitation um, at multiple times in the past, you know, so there was Right after the Civil War, there was an opportunity during Reconstruction. And, you know, what you really have is the bulk of white Christians lining up to smash Reconstruction and return to, you know, an assertion of white supremacy um, in the country. Um, You know, you see that with the erection of Jim Crow laws that were uh, protected by lynching and and uh, and by citizens, you know, citizens councils that were staffed by deacons and, you know, Mm -hmm. pastors uh, of white Christian churches the civil right, the, one of the most um, haunting lines uh, from Martin Luther King for me writing this book was, um, you know, this thing he said, not not about um, the most overtly racist, um, you know, uh, folks who were burning crosses and throwing bricks and spitting at people. But he was he had some really harsh words for, you know, the so-called um, racial moderates uh, who were sitting in white Christian churches in a letter from Birmingham jail. Um, you know, he writes about this and he and he basically says, who are these white Christians? Um, and then he has this great line, you know, who aren't stepping up, um, you know, for this basic issue of equality. Um, and I, and he has this line where he says, um, who are they sitting behind uh, their anesthetizing stained glass windows? Mm. And, and I do think that that's the role, you know, that white Christianity has played is really has been instead of enlivening our moral sensibilities, um, it has really played a numbing. Mm. Um, effect and a lulling of white consciences to sleep um, on on many of these issues. And, you know, so I think a, a real pointed question for white Christians today is, you know, okay, so, you know, for, I, you know, I'm 52 years old and for people who are like my age and I was born in 68, you know, and uh, for folks like me who grew up, you know, with, you know, maybe some uh, positive image of Martin Luther King and, mm. you know, a basic sense that Oh, you know, if I could transport myself back, I'd certainly be on the right side of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's way most white Christians think now. But um, where where are we? You know, right. on Black Lives Matter. Where are we on mass incarceration? Where are we on uh, all the differential health effects that COVID nineteen is um, laying out before our eyes with Black and Latino mm-hmm. Americans? You know, suffering and dying at, at rates twice the rates of whites. Um, you know, just where, so where are the white Christian voices on those questions today? Um, they're always harder in the present than they are in the rear view mirror. Right. Right. So what, I mean, in terms of success that you've had with this sort of, uh, bringing this to light with the target audience, which in many regards is white Christian America, what is, is the experience, what garners the most success I guess when you're trying to stir this uh, awakening in these groups or these people, wh- how does that go, and and how does one? Because I, I would imagine that you know anybody who's still toting a Confederate flag or 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 s- extremely out there in terms of still outwardly racist, I, I think I would imagine that they're sort of not reachable anyway. But if we're talking about this sort of anesthetized group. What is the way to sort of, in your eyes, wake them up if there is a way? Like, what is the avenue towards shaking them, you know, besides sticking a book in their face and saying, hey, you got to read this thing because you know how that goes. But like, what is the thing? Like, how does it how does it work? What's the best way? What is the way that it does work? How's that? how, How is that going? Yeah. Well, I, I think it is an invitation to a conversation, mm-hmm. you know, at the, at the end of the day. And that, again, that's one of the way, you know, I think about the book. Um, but but I also think that uh, facing it, um, you know, is is one of the, the challenging things and, and believing that there's a problem. Yeah. Right. I think that's that's the challenge. Mm-hmm. But one of the ways that I, I, you know, I try to do that in the book is that so this is a book full of a lot of history, but it's also a book full of um current public opinion data, you yeah. know, um, and, and so I think when you see the patterns in the public opinion data today, and basically what they show, like at a high level, is that um, if you look at the attitudes, and one of the things I try to do in the book is compare the attitudes of uh, white Americans who identify as Christian versus white Americans who don't, right? Um, and to kind of compare 
those two groups on a whole range of questions around racial equality, uh, structural racism, you know, et cetera. And the, the pattern that shows up over and over again um, is that it's, it, if you if you ask a question like who is closer to the views of Africa, the kind of views and concerns of African-Americans, um, it's not white Christians. It's actually whites who do not identify as Christian that are closer to the concerns and, and views of African-Americans. So, for example, if you ask about, um, you know, uh, issues straight related to the killing of George Floyd, um, what do you think about the killing of African-American men by police? Are, are these just isolated incidents uh-huh. or are they things that um, indicate a broader pattern of how police treat African-Americans? And, you know, whites who are Christian are twice as likely as whites who are not to say they're just isolated incidents. They can't connect the dots or they don't connect the dots or unwilling to connect the dots. A uh, very similar thing if you ask about the Confederate flag or Confederate monuments, um, you know, there's a 30 percentage point gap uh, between white Christians um, uh, and whites who are who are religiously unaffiliated. Uh, and those in white Christians are 30 points more likely to say that the Confederate flag or Confederate monuments are um, just a symbol of Southern pride rather wow. than a symbol of racism. So when you see those kinds of things, that's not about the past. Right, right. That's right. about the legacy of the past in the present. Yeah. Um, and when and that's over and over and over again. I mean, and, you know, in the book, I took some great pains to not just one or two questions, you know, that I cherry picked, but like 15 different questions covering a whole range of ground. And this pattern shows up over and over and over again. And and then even when you control for things like, oh, you know, Republican identity or living in the South or. Uh, or having a college education or not, or living in a rural area versus an urban area. We, even when you control for all those attributes, mm-hmm. these patterns stand up, which tells you that it really is what's really doing the work um, is uh, something about um, Christianity and the way it's been inherited and interpreted that is limiting white Christians' ability to see structural racism and structural injustice. Right. So basically what you're saying— the, it, to someone, let's say, an atheist in a city, we might think, oh, that's like a southern old world mentality. But in reality, it's just it, the, the, the constant is the affiliation with Christianity. Right. Yeah, yeah. it's not region of the country. It's not where you live um, it, it, or, you know, urban role. It's not even partisanship. I mean, I, I really thought it was a chance when I was doing the analysis that once I controlled for partisanship, mm-hmm. a lot of this would go, you know, a lot of the religious effect would just disappear. Um, but in fact, it stands up uh, still in a pretty robust way, which tells you statistically that it really is um, the Christian identity piece of this um, that is that is um, carrying carrying the water. Yeah, that's a truly uh, incredible fact. Um, you mentioned m- monuments, and that is such a—it's—it's—it's it's, it's something that is heavily debated today, especially now. I think, and uh, this is something just personally that has always um, stood out as particularly well confusing. I suppose I don't understand how there are still so many. Uh, monuments to either the Confederacy or even hearkening back to it in a in a positive light, um, and and I know the argument for heritage tradition, it doesn't carry much weight to me, but I I, I, I just don't understand how this is still such such a thing and how it's even still such a debate. And the only thing I can point to is that. This is a, a a river that runs very deep still in many, many places. Because uh, if we're talking about a statue commemorating Robert E. Lee, for instance, I th- my mind goes to, well, obviously take that down. In fact, don't even have it up. But mm-hmm. it is up, and people really fight taking these things down. I mean, even the president is, t- is outwardly talking about how it's stupid that NASCAR bans the Confederate flag. Mm-hmm. I mean, these, these are all sort of like socks in the jaw to me because I'm always thinking I'm just not surrounded by those things in my own life. And I think to someone like me, it's very easy to write it off as like, well, that's just a bunch of racists. That's just a bunch of this or that. And obviously that is a, that is a part of it, but there's, there has to be something more, I think, than, than the simple argument of, well, it's our heritage. 
and and I'm curious if you have a, a read on that because you do talk about it in the book. A read yeah. on the sort of defense of it, the, the modern day 2020 defense of these things. If you can encapsulate that, because it's truly something I, I do not understand. Yeah, well, I, I think it it, um, it it's often devoid of of these monuments' own history, which is sort of ironic since mm. they are historic in their very nature, right? right they're yeah. about they're about history, but the history of the monuments themselves, I think, is largely unknown yes. and largely ignored, right? And so, you know, one question is asked, well, when were these things put up? And by the way, there are a ton of these things. Um, so, you know, the Southern Poverty Law Center has documented them. And um, when I was writing the book, I you know, looked and they had documented, uh, as of last year, um, nearly 1,750 Confederate monuments, place names, holidays, and other symbols in public places. Now, this is not counting private property, right. like just on public in public space, on schools, courthouse lawns, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and you you don't get that kind of thing without a very concerted effort. So, I mean, there was a very well-funded and well-organized um, uh, effort uh, that was headed up by this organization called the United Daughters of the Confederacy, um, and it is a group that most people never heard of. But if you look in the small print, you know, on the back of many of these monuments, they're, you know, paid for, erected by the UDC, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, um, can account for a vast majority of these. And they were raising, you know, in today's money, like tens of millions of dollars. Um, and the, the point of them uh, really was to, um, after the loss of the Civil War, and then, and these were put up, um, again, after, um, you know, the Civil War. Right. So, and, and that's the other piece is that um, half of them, um, uh, were well, nine, I should start nine and ten of them were erected after 1895, right? So, about three decades after the war, m- the vast majority of them uh, are up, are, are not up until three decades after the Civil War. Um, and then, um, about half of them were erected in this period between 1900 and 1930. Um, that, that's a big building boom. What's going on then? Yeah. That's exactly the time when. Uh, the southern states are reinscribing Jim Crow laws mm. and disenfranchising black voters um, all over the South. Um, so there's this big boom. Uh, so at the same time, black voters are getting disenfranchised. Uh, the KKK is on the rise, and second, you know, coming of the KKK is on the rise. There is a, a big uh, uh, spate of uh, racial violence and lynchings. All of this is going on at the same time these monuments to the Confederacy are going up, and they are unmistakably monuments to white supremacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are really there to say, don't you mistake, even though we lost the war, don't you have any you know, misgivings about who's still in power? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why they're, most, they're on places like the Capitol lawn or the courthouse lawn. Right, were places where African Americans might think they could go for relief um, mm. or for for equal rights and protection. Yeah, they're there. Those big statues are there on the courthouse lawn to say, no, no, no. This is still uh, a society run by whites for whites, um, and don't you forget your place in it. And that was really the kind of symbolic role uh, that many of these had. And actually, you can see there was a second little boomlet uh, that happened um, between 1950 and 1970. Mm. Um, so what's happening then yeah. around the Board of Education and the um, desegregation of public schools? So there's just a correlation in the timeline um, between these reassertions of white supremacy and these markers that were very, you know, they cost a lot of money. And so there was yeah. a very intentional educational and public relations effort um, put forward to kind of literally mark the territory um, as white supremacist territory. Yeah, I think that that was a big shock to me just to learn that this stuff was isn't sort of a relic of a bygone time uh, where its presence can almost be attributed to that bygone time. These are these were erected almost all of them in the last 100, 120 years. Uh, yep. and there are, they are so widespread and, you know, I, it, it, it's, it, it's hard to reconcile, uh, in, in, with the modern mind really, particularly one that is, uh, uh, not surrounded by them in any way. So to hear you talk about them, it's almost just like, it sounds like a, a, an, a parallel universe, you know, but the fact yeah. is, is that these things seven, you said 1750, 
Yeah, almost 1,750, yeah. Yeah, that's almost impossible to believe. And and I think someone might argue, even a moderate-minded person might argue, oh, well, those don't matter. Those are just still standing. They're not really symbols of anything anymore. But I don't know if they're anything but symbols. That, that's all they are. They're symbols of, yeah. of this hateful ideology that are very, very, very prevalent. And the fact that there's still the ongoing debate about whether to keep them up or take them down. Can, can you, what are the even the, the arguments to keep them up to like today? If I were to talk to, I know obviously you're yeah. not like this, but if I were to talk to someone who really still wants these monuments up, what would they tell us? Like what, what would, what would their argument be? You know, I, I think what you hear, right. You hear the word heritage a mm-hmm. lot. Um, uh, and, and I think when we hear that word, for example, from, President Trump, um, you know, it's coded language, right? Yeah. Um, it, and it really is about this, um, you know, it, it's about this vision of, it's about a lost cause, kind of, you know, is what it gets called by historians, this lost cause that even though the war was lost, this ideal mm-hmm. of Southern society, right, um, is uh, carried forward. And and it's, uh, so I think it's, but but that's not what's, you know, the, the language is just about the Civil War. It's about states rights it's about i mean you can look at my twitter yeah. feed and you know <laughs> yeah. pick, pick this up it's just yeah. about states rights it's about our heritage um you know but I, I think i do think those arguments are all wearing thin um i one you know uh thing for example that's happened since uh, even since i turned in a manuscript for the book last year uh, or last fall um i would not have imagined for example that um uh, the Mississippi Baptist Convention, uh, which is the state arm of the Southern Baptist Convention in Mississippi, uh, would call on the governor and the legislature to take down, take out to remove the Confederate battle flag from the state flag, mm. um, you know, which they did, um, you know, after the killing of, of George Floyd. Um, and, and, and the governor and the legislature followed suit and did it, mm. um, you know, in, in very short order. Um, that's been a long-standing battle, um, you know, in the state of Mississippi, and and but and I do think that, you know, this this I I think ability to turn a, a, a blind eye and a deaf ear to African Americans who say what painful symbols these are, you know, or when they're walking to the courthouse, um, you know, and they look up and there's this symbol there. It is this kind of reminder. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, that, that, that you're not going to get a fair shake, you know, and if, if we should have symbols, you know, around our courthouses and our and our places where our laws are made, they really need to be symbols that are that are really unifying symbols and saying, you know, like like the 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 statue of, um, you know, justice is blind. Right. Of, of right. The, the woman holding a scales with a, a blindfold on to say that, you know, that's that's a vision that everyone's going to be treated fairly when they enter these doors. Uh, but when you've got, you know, a Confederate soldier on a 60 foot uh, <laughs> column, that says literally the opposite. But I think the argument is just but, it, but it's, a, it's a fairly shallow one. I, I do think it's one that's wearing thin, even among like Mississippi Baptists, for right, example. Yeah. And that's that's saying something. Yeah. Uh, I also you, you talk a bit about this in your book. And I, this is something that I uh, think about quite a bit just because of. It's so historically unsound, but also just what it says and how it dovetails a lot with the, the ideas in your book. This idea of Jesus as as a white man, as a white guy, mm-hmm. is a historical impossibility, essentially. Uh, and so it just is is it's it's anti truth, is what it is. And and the insistence still that depictions of Jesus are a white a white guy. Um, yeah, I think there's some kind of like, um, microcosm that's like almost, it, 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 it well represents the kind of denial that we're talking about here because it's, it's, it's just pure fantasy knee jerk denial. Um, when, when in history or, or any sort of, uh, rationalizing with these, against these arguments will not work. It's just about, they want to see their Jesus white. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Because uh, is that something that like was put was by design, or was that just sort of this default? Well, we're white, so Jesus was white. Like, what is the origination of that sort of uh, image? Yeah. I suppose. 
Well, you know, I, I think it is a, a kind of default something that follows from the theology, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if there is a worldview where, um, and, and this was the worldview that you kind of, you know, pick up, and again, you know, not not in the ancient past, I mean, all the way up into the 20th century, you would get this kind of theology that um, had uh, sort of God, so what is God's ideal for human society? And the way the argument would go is, well, um, it, it is the thing driving manifest destiny. It is that white Europeans um, were basically appointed by God to civilize the rest of the world, mm. right? So it fits very well with colonialism. Um, and, and if that's the case, um, then surely, and, and, and the justification for that is that God literally created whites as a superior race, right? Yeah. Um, and, and then appointed them with a, uh, with a job to do, and that was to take the inferior races and, and kind of civilize them and, and raise the level of humanity. That's the, even the, the more uh, generous versions of that would, would talk about it that way. So if that's the case, um, Jesus, if that's the presupposition, mm-hmm. then Jesus, by definition, has to be, right. um, if he's the model, model human, right, um, then he has to be a member of the superior race. He couldn't be a member of the inferior race. It would sort of make theological nonsense. Now, what, what's striking, you know, that you were talking about is, um, you know, for, for folks, particularly like Baptists and other kind of conservative Protestants who claim to read the Bible literally, yeah. Um, this also presents a little bit of a conundrum, right? right. Because the, the Bible doesn't ever describe Jesus' physical appearance, but it's pretty clear that he's a Jewish man from the, it, or it is clear that yeah. he's a Jewish man from the Middle East, right? So he's clearly yeah. not from Europe. Yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and, but I just think it wasn't, it, that, that disc, the power of the theological worldview was such that that conflict just gets dismissed. Um, and, and the other idea, I think, of, of purely among evangelical theology that is about this personal relationship with Jesus, mm-hmm. right, is the mm-hmm. model for Christianity. And it's very intimate. Uh, there's language like in hymns and other, like, let Jesus come into your heart, mm-hmm. right, those kinds of, um, that kind of language. And now you can imagine if you were raised in a white segregationist um, worldview, the idea of letting a brown man come into your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, has got to send terror sure. um, into you, right? Yeah. Um, and it just would make no theological sense. So despite the uh, kind of contradiction straight out of Scripture, um, I think the just the, 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 assum- the white supremacist assumptions built into Christian theology almost made it a, non, uh, a non-issue. Right. It's almost a thing that if you examine it, the whole th- you pull the thread and the whole thing comes undone. So you you can't yeah, even think yeah. about the thread in the first place. You don't even see the thread because you can't. Otherwise, the whole thing right. crumbles. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it, it actually reminds me a bit, another thing in your book that you talked about, which, you know, it's interesting because I, it's when I read stuff like the the facts that you write about in your book, I, I it, it's easier for me to process someone I see as just plainly evil. But when I read about the rationalizations that some of these early uh, church founders, segregationists, slave owners had for them doing it and how they would use the Bible, specifically yeah. take passages from it, or even I think there's one passage where you talk about one, uh, or not maybe not one slave owner in particular, but one way of thinking of them, which was, well, slavery exists, and since we are the enlightened group of people it's a way of it's slavery is a way of the world and if that's the case then we should be the ones to own the slaves because we are christian and we will treat yeah. them better than other people and uh-huh. that, that's just again it's this all unbelievably willful looking away from the the source of of, of the of the of the of the ultimate problem and 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 it's 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 harder for me to contend contend with that actually than it is with just a totally terrible person through and through if that makes sense yeah. because it's when you read that kind of rationalization it just bowls you over with its with this blindness you know it's the mental gymnastics that these people have mm-hmm. done historically to make it seem like it's okay is is incredible yeah. you know well you know and it started very early i mean you know, we already mentioned the united daughters of the confederacy that put up all these monuments and and those were educate they even talked about those as educational tools for children so right. as children walked 
the city streets, they would be instructed as to what, you know, God's ideal for society was. Um, one of the places I, you know, that I was really struck by um, is that in addition to the monuments, um, there was a, and, and I should say also the United Daughters of the Confederacy, uh, th- this was 100,000 women at its peak. I mean, this was a massive yeah. organization. Um, and they were connected to the, you know, the wealthiest uh, landowner, you know, class um, were, their, were their husbands for the most part. And uh, so they had lots of money, lots of resources, and they created this thing called a Confederate catechism. Um, uh, you know, and for those of your you know, listeners who don't know, a catechism, you know, is um, basically a training thing that, that's used by churches to mm-hmm. teach the kind of fundamentals of the faith. And so when you're going through confirmation um, at age you know, 12 or 13, you go through a catechism class and you basically learn the basics of the faith. And it's a rote thing where the teacher reads something and then the students are supposed to respond back to it. Um, but the, the UDC can created a parallel Confederate catechism to go along with the Christian catechism. Mm-hmm. And in, in just in terms of, of um, this goes to your point of how uh, it's sometimes hard to imagine how this all was rationalized, but we realized it was built very early into the education of children. So while they were getting their Christian education, they were also getting this. And just uh, two questions from there that I, I think just are, are really wild. You know, so, so the teacher would ask uh, to the children, how were the slaves treated? And the children had to memorize this next line. Okay. With, with great kindness and care in nearly all cases, a cruel master being rare and lost the respect of his neighbors if he treated his slaves badly. Self-interest would have prompted good treatment if a higher human feeling of humanity had not. So that's the children's part. Then the next question from the teacher, what was the feeling of the slaves toward their masters? And the part that the children would memorize is this. They were faithful and devoted and were always ready and willing to serve them. Right. Uh, so if you've got that baked in from the age of five, six, right, on a weekly basis and you're memorizing, you know, these sorts of things, um, it really does get built in very, very deeply. Um, you know, to your worldview, but but also uh, you know, a counterpoint to this uh, is, you know, Frederick Douglass um, in his first autobiography, which I think a lot of people have read, but there's an appendix at the back um, that I think often gets uh, not as much attention as it deserves. He devoted an entire appendix to the hypocrisy of white Christianity mm. um, with regard to slavery. And one of the th- things of his own experience, and he says it's backed up by, you know, many of his uh, people who were enslaved that he knew. Uh, he actually says at one point, um, the worst calamity that could befall, you know, I, I always, I, that it may, I learned that the, lear- the worst calamity that could fall me, that could befall me aside from being a slave itself, would be being enslaved to a Christian slave master. Yeah. Um, and he said that because basically what he found is that um, while uh, non-Christian slave masters, you know, might be cruel, um, there was a there was a kind of, um, you know, often a, a limiting a human a humanity that would limit their cruelty. Yeah. Uh, but once they became Christian and, and their entire worldview and owning slaves uh, was blessed by Christianity, it, it had the kind of odd effect of eroding their humanity further. Um, and so that their consciences, again, were kind of tamped down, and they actually became uh, more cruel slave masters uh, than than they were before they converted to Christianity. Yeah, I, that's 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 so. I think at a, at a on a surface reading, that's so counterintuitive. But I think that when you pair that with a lot of the stuff in your book and and, and a deeper reading of it, you really see that it, it, again. It actually it 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 brings to mind the the Martin Luther King Jr. line about the anesthetizing yeah. uh, stained glass windows. It's like, though you can use, you can wield Christianity in a way that really, in this case, makes you much more uh, terrifying or capable of committing horrific acts or even ha- holding a yeah. horrific worldview by being a believer as opposed to being a non-believer and i think it, it is counterintuitive but it really as you dig deeper really really that really does uh make sense i i want to ask you too i think in many ways again perhaps on a service reading the agenda of making kids memorize and recite answers like that 
I think is clear, but I think really what is the agenda? Cause I think for me, it's like, well, to, to instill in their mind, this sort of not only like rosy picture of the past, sort of like de-stain uh, in their mind, their own heritage, or, but also to sort of instill some idea of superiority moving forward in their life. But what, what is the ultimate agenda there? I mean, do, do you know what I mean? Like what, what is it yeah. accomplishing in their minds? Like, I don't, I don't get the end game. I don't think, you know? Yeah. I, I think the end game is the preservation of power, right? I mean, you know, what whiteness has always been about in the country is, you know, if you can lay claim to being white, um, and, and this has always been a contested category, and I kind of go into this a little bit in the book too, right? I mean, Irish people right. were certainly not considered white. Italians were not considered white. Uh, Jews were not considered white. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and and this sort of like clamoring to be to claim this this category, and and hell, I should be really clear too that prior to coming to America, British people, French people, German people. Uh, none of them would have thought of themselves as white. They would have considered themselves Germans and right. French and British, yeah. right? Um, and this that idea of whiteness, though, really takes off in America. Um, but it, what it really does, it really is an umbrella term for who's admitted to the privileged, protected class, mm. um, right? Where laws are set up to, to um, uh, uh, give you more opportunities than others so you can get better jobs, you can go to better schools, you can live, or, live in safer and better places um in in your local town i mean it you know everything from real estate law to tax law to who can vote um i mean all of these things are set up really to privilege that that class of people so at the the end of the day um it really is about protecting this category of privilege and um and superiority and so you know the the reason i called the book white too long is i'm really calling on you know a, a I think it's it's high time to admit that's the, that's been the game all along, yeah. Um, and to let it go, yeah. Um, you know, it, it's well beyond time to 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 just say, yep, that's what it's been about. Right. And um, you know, it's 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 time if we really want to, you know, say we believe, uh, you know, in a country where everyone's created equal, um, and everyone has an equal chance in life. Um, these kind of, you know, things that we like to tell ourselves that our country stands for. Um, we got to let go of this privileged category of, of whiteness and, and white Christians in particular, yeah. um, have got to, um, you know, own the ways that Christianity legitimized that myth, um, and, and have a real role in deconstructing it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, before we wrap up here, we're coming up on an hour, but I want to ask you, cause white too long came, when did, when white too long late last year, did this book come out? No, it's only been out for two weeks. Oh shit. It's hot off the press. Oh, you said 2019. <laughs> oh, okay. So what I want to know you, so you, but you turned it in, in, and it's, yeah, I yeah, guess so what, I'm in, yeah. what I'm getting yeah, at, what I'm getting at really is last fall. how yeah, much yeah. has changed just in terms of the racial conversation since yeah. then. And what I, I'm curious about, especially because of what you do uh, with the polling and everything. What if, what are like, what are you seeing? Because I think you uniquely have your finger on the pulse of a lot of these conversations that many people don't. Uh, I think what maybe sit up updating, uh, if there's anything sort of mm-hmm. shifting since everything that we've endured this summer uh, between George Floyd and the protests, Black Lives Matter, so much uh, societal upheaval in general, and that's totally leaving out the coronavirus pandemic and the fallout of that. Are, yeah. is there, are there any shifts that you're sort of paying attention to or seeing uh, that are emerging um, obvious or not obvious uh, uh, that, yeah. since you, since you finished writing the book? Yeah. Well, it, I mean, I do think it's amazing. I mean, it was just, you know, it really was like last September that I turned the book right. manuscript and then, you know, it takes a while for the publishing wheels to turn. Um, and it just got released publicly two weeks ago. Um, but, you know, I, I, two things. So I, I do write, you know, at, at the beginning of the chapters of the book ab- about how it does seem like we're heading into, and this was before, you know, the, the events we've seen this summer. Right. But even then, the, there was some pressure building, um, you know, so there was um, Dylan Roof and the mass murders at Mother Emanuel in yeah. Charleston. There was the Charlottesville. Today, actually, is the three-year anniversary of, of the Charlottesville 
um, oh, marches, the white supremacists um, marching in, in Charlottesville, you know, chanting blood and soil and Jews will not replace us and, and all, and all that. And, and um, uh, you know, the killing of one uh, counter protester. Um, so, uh, so there was already these things happening right. and I think George Floyd kind of broke it open. You yeah. know, there were maybe crack or there were kind of cracks forming in the dam and now the water's rushing through. I think that's, uh, the best way to think about it. Um, so, so this moment has been coming and building, um, and it's here. Um, and but I do think I, I do think it's worth saying that it, this moment is real. If you you can look at so many things, I already mentioned the the Mississippi Baptist and the Confederate flag being gone from the state flag of Mississippi. Yeah. Um, you know, we're talking about the monuments, um, but there was a story in CNN just today um, that there's been uh, several hundred. Of, you know, so there's still 1,700. There's so we start off with 1,750 of these monuments, but several hundred, nearly 400 of them, have disappeared in the last five or six weeks. Wow. Um, you know, so that's a big deal. Um, in Richmond, you know, the former capital of the Confederacy, where some of the most massive of these monuments are, uh, there's five big monuments and 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 uh, along along what's called Monument Avenue in Richmond. Yeah. Uh, and I write about this in the book, but but um, these are massive, big monuments that the UDC raised money for and installed. Uh, but four of the the stat the bronze statues at the center of four or five of those monuments are are gone. Um, again, all in the last four to six weeks, and the and the fifth one uh, to Robert E. Lee is slated for removal later. Um, they're waiting on it. Has to be approved by the state legislature to, huh. in order to uh, to be removed. But but that's a big deal, right? That those statues have stood there for over a hundred years. Yeah. Um, I mean, they were put up like the one to Jefferson Davis was put up in 1907, um, and just coming down, you know, this summer. Uh, that's all I think a, a big deal and real. I, I would not have anticipated that we'd had that much movement um, in such a short amount of time. Um, so that gives me some hope. Um, on the other hand, uh, the one place of caution I would say is that we um, I did we did put back in the field um, just a, a couple of weeks ago uh, several of these questions that I had um, on uh, structural racism mm. um, and in the book, and, and we're actually releasing them next week. So I can't give you the exact numbers because they're not out yet. But okay. I can say this. Um, that um, that there's not that much movement mm. among white Christian groups on these deeper underlying questions. So we we have seen some movement on support for the Black Lives Matter movement. There's mm. more movement among white Americans there. But if you ask the deeper questions about police killings uh, of African American men by police, uh, Confederate symbols and monuments, the the those deeper questions, we're just not seeing that much movement. At least not yet. It's very interesting. Uh, I guess just to wrap up here real quick, are you, I, I hear hope in your voice. I read hope in your book. How hopeful would you say you are? What if you? I, I know none of us are prognosticators, but how do you feel about what's to come in terms of not only this conversation, but but this, um, I suppose, problem really at the root of what you're writing about? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I am feeling hopeful. Um, you know, I, I there there are conversations happening at the local level, um, even though I think sometimes at the national level it looks kind of hopeless. Yeah. Um, but I do think there's some real important things happening at the local level. I write a little bit about you know like these two Baptist churches in Macon, uh, one white, one black, um, that have really done the hard work over the last five years of building community and reckoning with their very difficult shared history uh, together. And there, you can multiply that, you know, um, it doesn't always make the headlines, um, but there, those conversations are slowly um, happening. And, and I, you know, to go back to where we started, um, it's a good way to wrap up. Sure. You know, we started with talking about the difficulty of seeing the mm -hmm. problem. Yeah. Um, and it, I think if they're in, in that's something that's hard to manufacture is, is that kind of vision. But I think the current moment we're in is delivering yeah. that. Um, it is is just becoming very very difficult. Again, whether you're looking at COVID nineteen and the differential, yeah. um, you know, death and hospitalization rates by race, uh, health outcomes, wealth outcomes, and then just the treatment by police, mass incarceration. These are all issues that are coming to light in a way that I think are harder and harder to deny the reality of. And I think that's the open door um, that begins the conversation. Um, and you know, the the thing that I hope is. Um, that you know, particularly white Christians will take up this opportunity, um, and and not just look for a quick way to patch things up, uh, but will take this as the invitation to a much longer journey that's going to involve some difficult questions around how do we repair the damage, uh, how do we talk about justice, and not just you know 
putting our arms around each other and singing Kumbaya. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is very well put. Um, I really appreciate your time, Robert. I loved your book, White Too Long. What is the sub uh, sub headline again? It's White Too Long. Uh, yeah. The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. Uh, read it, pick it up, read it, get the audiobook, whatever, but get it into your brain. It's an important work. Robert, thank you for your time. Uh, and just thanks for everything you do. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to say before we wrap up, but, but, uh, no, it's yeah. great. It's been a really engaging conversation. I really, really appreciate it. All right, man. Well, thanks a lot, Robert. And, uh, hopefully I'll talk to you soon, man.